Every organization needs to do two things to succeed and grow. To deliver value to its market. Delivering value means addressing their needs at a reasonable cost. And to capture value back. And capturing value might mean revenue, market share, anything we need in order to grow our own business, to monetize, to have more resources. And then, of course, we can deliver more value. It's kind of a virtuous loop of give and take. Hello and welcome to Polyweb. I'm your host, Sara Landitortoli, and my guest today is Itamar. Gilada, product coach and leader with over two decades of experience at companies such as Microsoft and Google and author of the book Evidence Guided. At Google, Itamar was part of the Gmail team and he is the product manager behind the Gmail tapped inbox, a feature used every day by millions of users. This is a really practical, hands-on, value-packed conversation. So I really hope that you will enjoy it as much as I did. Itamar, welcome to Polyweb. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. It's my pleasure to have you. And I thought we can start this conversation with a little bit of background because you worked in the past at Google and specifically Gmail and uh, YouTube. And I imagine that that kind of informed your experience in writing your book about being evidence-guided when you develop product. So I'm interested to know what exactly in the experiences that you went through while you were working at those companies informed your thinking and shaped your thinking in the way we should build products. Okay. So for the deeper background, I'm a former engineer turned product manager, and now I'm consulting and advising, and uh, I wrote this book. And it's true. Although I worked for about 15 years already before I joined Google, Google was took everything to a different level and introduced me to both tremendous highs, but some lows about how to approach product development. And <clears throat> I can describe both like one of the the lows was that i was in a very small way contributing to google plus which was this huge huge project that engulfed all of google it was an attempt to build a social network and it failed catastrophically it's like all the effort we put into it over years and years and years yielded very little and the whole social network shut down and a lot of users weren't super happy about the fact that they, we integrated Gmail with Google Plus and YouTube. Uh, if you want, I can go into the story. This is actually the first story I tell in my book. But on the other hand, there was this very rich Google DNA of creating very successful products that people love. Products like Gmail, like YouTube, like, like Google Search, basically maps, basically everything we all know. I know that for one, my life is really, in my life, these this applications feature very strongly. So it was a pleasure to work on Gmail and to discover some of this DNA and use some of the techniques that were kind of with Google from the get-go. And some of the principles like customer focus or think big and start small, evidence-guided decisions, etc. It impacted me so much that after I left Google, that's what I wanted to teach, these evidence-guided methods. And that's what culminated in the book. This is what I describe in the book, how to do it systematically. So I read about your experience integrating Google Plus to Gmail and then later on working on the on, on Gmail, the tabs. So maybe we can get more into that. But I haven't really heard you talking about your experience at YouTube. And I think a lot of the listeners here are actually very drawn to YouTube in general as a platform. Right. So maybe we can get into that. For sure. I'm not an expert on YouTube. I, I spent about a year plus there. And in the time I was there, it was kind of transitioning from what Google acquired, which was a very kind of community-based and very organic kind of social destination to a more commercialized, more kind of grown-up product and a lot of things that kind of existed in the in the early days we had to ask does that fit within the more kind of buttoned up you know corporate product that it became 
while how do we still keep the this youth and happiness and you know the the vitality of the site so that was kind of a challenge this was the time where a lot of the advertising formats were added you know the skippable ads that are that became kind of industry standards what i worked on was i had two projects but one of them was youtube annotations which today don't exist so much but it was kind of an early attempt some team within youtube basically created interactive video so building interactivity into the video you can click on parts of the video and it will take you to another video or to another part of your own video and the ability to build textual messages inside the, the video and that was very interesting and it created a lot of great use cases but it was also abused in a big way and the challenge for my team was to think how do we keep it but tone it down and not allow it to be as wild and free as it used to be and that was a challenge that over time devolved into what it is today which is there is some interactivity but it's very confined it's not like clearly something very big that you can do and i think that's not a typical of what a lot of mature products have to do they kind of have to deal with their legacy and ask what should we keep what what should we grow and what should we actually sunset or tweak down uh, because it doesn't work for us anymore so that was my first experience at google very interesting company youtube very dynamic and and after that i switched to gmail and i did move to another flagship why do you suppose that interactivity didn't work because it's kind of similar i think to what happened with google plus or where the premise is completely different it's kind of different in the sense that google plus was a big top-down corporate mandate big idea we must build this we must integrate all of google into this social network that looks a lot like facebook and we must make this a success this is an idea that is too big to to fail annotations and interactive video that was part of them came bottom up this was one team i think originally in israel then the project moved to zurich then it moved to to america they just came up with this idea and at the time the management was very open to ideas to bottom up ideas so let's just launch it let's see what happens and it was very open-ended it was here's these tools we allow you to create whatever you want with that so as I came in as a product manager, one of the first things I wanted to do was see how people are using this. Because inside the company, there was a very negative impression that annotations are just noise. Most of the time, they create just noise. And I created this whole full playlist of really good examples of how people are teaching music using this or creating choose-your-own kind of story using this. And a lot of really beautiful examples. The challenge with some of these things is the assumption that if you build it, they will come, doesn't always happen. When people need to invest a lot of effort into creating an inter interactive video, there needs to be a payback. An interactive video in general is a concept that existed for decades, but no one actually made it a success. YouTube is maybe the closest thing because it did get a lot of traction, Netflix did some experiments. If you remember, like a few years ago, there was there were a couple of uh, interactive Netflix uh, episodes. Um, but it's an example of an idea that no one actually managed to, to, to succeed with. And I think that's what ultimately YouTube realized. This is nice. It's, it's getting usage, but it's not creating enough value to, to keep inside the platform. I wonder, as a product manager who worked uh, for such products, uh, where you add... Uh some degree of freedom in deciding what to build. So aside from, I believe, the case of Google Plus that you mentioned was very much top-down, but you also were involved in a majorly successful initiative at Gmail that maybe we can get into it and you could explain for listeners. Even within Google Plus, we did things in a sort of a googly way, which is, yes, there is a top-down strategy, yes, there is a top-down maybe big idea, but then the request to people is come back to us bottom up with your ideas, with your suggestions, etc. And this is kind of the classic sort of leadership that uh, if you read Peter Drucker and Andy Grove and like the originators of OKRs, that's what they recommend. I mean, the goals should come top down, the strategic goals, but then bottom up, the teams should offer 
tactical goals because they understand the tactical context, they understand their area of responsibility, they understand their specific users and their specific parts of the product. And the middle management is kind of negotiating in both ways. It's helping connect everything to the strategy. It's helping teams recognize what other teams are doing. It's helping the voice of the teams and even if individuals reach upper management, very important role, very important. The director level of product management is and an engineering and design are very important here. So that's how we operated across the board in all my experiences at Google, including Google+. What happened in Gmail, and this is the story of the tabbed inbox, is that kind of I came up with an idea where I looked at my inbox and I saw it was filled with stuff I didn't really want to read. It wasn't spam. It wasn't like someone just spamming me out of the blue. These were, you know, social networks or transactions that I completed and the store sent me an invoice or or, or promotions, yeah, but from companies and brands that I know. And sometimes I wanted to read these things, but mostly I didn't. And I was too lazy to clean up my inbox, so they just piled up and I was kind of annoyed with them. So I thought, let's do some automatic feature that just digests all of this. You see only your important mail, and then you see a little digest on the side. It says, you know, you also got three promotions and and five notifications and these two transactional things and, 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 and some social messages. Great. And then if you want, you can click on it and start diving into it. I was convinced that's the best idea ever. I'm going to transform Gmail with this thing. I'm going to to do a great job here. I came to my team. I came to my managers and I said, I tried to push for it, to get funding, you know, to start the project. And everyone was kind of meh about it. They say, first, do you know that users actually need this? Maybe you're special, but... Do you think that most users actually are in your situation? Second, we have quite a few other uh, projects and features inside Gmail that are supposed to help with this problem, and most of them are not used. So why your feature? And actually, they were kind of pushing back and asking me to specify what is the goal and then kind of explain why this is needed, actually. Why is this a high-priority thing? So... In order to do this, we started doing research, and that answers your question about how do you come up with ideas. I came up with ideas from my own experience, and that's one good way. But another good way is to observe the users, either qualitatively by actually observing them or interviewing them, or quantitatively by observing their their behavior online, their data, whatever you collect. And we did both. We started with a quantitative analysis where one of the backend engineers just aggregated the, the actions of users and kind of tries to assess what the casual user, the non-business user, the not superpower user, how do they process their email? And we realized they don't. They just let all the email come in and accumulate in the inbox. They don't mark anything. Maybe they mark something as unread, but they don't use any of the features we offer them. And that was a surprise. We didn't realize it was like that. And then we brought in to the lab, a bunch of people and started asking them to show us their inboxes, like casual users, what we call the, maybe the big inboxers, the passive users. And we found people with 50, 60, 100, 120,000 unread messages in the inbox, just a huge pile of unread messages. These people got a lot of social notifications. Back in the day, Facebook would send you a notification every time someone messaged you or, or anything, a lot of transactional. And they didn't deal with this very well. It was hard to find an important message. It was hard to, to get back to it. So doing these two types of research really validated the point that this is a major pain point. This is a major opportunity for us to step in. Now the question was whether it was my idea or another idea. And other people came up with other ideas that sounded just as valid. Uh, not a digest, but let's train them how to use the existing features or let's do something else. And we started testing these ideas in the lab. Again, sometimes with the same people. First, we interview them and then we show them something. And one of the ideas really, really succeeded in this test. And that was the tabs. We organized the mail into categories. 
One we called primary, which was basically from friends and family and etc. Second was promotions, there were not, uh, notifications, and there were other ones. Uh, and social, and that really worked. They really loved it. And the way we did this is actually we didn't implement the feature at all. We just built a facade of Gmail that had the tabs. And then as we interviewed the customer, and based on the permissions they gave us, some of us copied just the sender and the subject line of the first 50 messages from the inbox and dragged them into the right tab. And then after the interview, the researcher would say, okay, I want to show you something and then click here, please. And then they would see their own inbox organized into the tabs by category based on our own guesses. And we observed them, what, what the reaction was. And in the first test, it was really pivotal for us 10 out of the 12 participants absolutely loved this thing. They, their faces were just glowing with happiness. It was exactly what they needed. They just never knew that they can have it. And they could explain immediately why each message ended up there. They explained they could use it. It was very simple. And they wanted it. They wanted it right now. Uh, and that was great. The two other ones... Uh, that we brought in actually knew how to use filters and uh, labels and other stuff that Gmail offered. So they had things under control. So those people actually had a negative reaction to this. They said, I don't, I don't think this is a good idea. I don't think that's necessary. And interestingly, all my colleagues at Gmail and all the, you know, the power users like you and me and all the tech press later had the same reaction. The same 15% of power users so this was a stupid idea. I had to explain this to people time and again. This is not for you. This is designed for the more casual user. But the 85% absolutely loved it. So from there on, it was a process of discovery. This was the first step, what I call a step, this a validation step. Actually, the, the initial research steps were the first ones. And then that was the first one. They gave us a lot more confidence to build a bigger idea. But we kept testing and we keep, kept iterating on the design and we kept growing the team and the scope until it became a very big feature that engulfed all of Gmail, including the two mobile clients, and really changed the product. And today, when users enter Gmail, the first thing they see is this default inbox that is organized by category. So those are billions of active users that are experiencing this. And we collected a lot of data that proves that they're actually gaining a lot of value from it. Yeah, I personally love oh, it. Oh, great. Yeah, 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 yeah. I don't use labels anymore, for example, like rarely, just for certain things. The only thing is, yeah, newsletter tend to, <laughs> tend to go to the wrong inbox, but it's okay. That's correct. Yeah, that's uh... I had the same problem. Uh, yeah, it's it's hard to differentiate between a newsletter and a promotion. They have the same structure. The machine learning model sometimes gets confused between them. So that's yeah, definitely something to improve. I wonder how, when we build product, can we be evidence guided or rather develop a system that allow us to evaluate for every single goal that we need to achieve uh, or intuition that we have, what it's worth to right. build uh, or not. Yeah, that's the, the billion dollar question. Yeah. <laughs> how, how to become evidence-guided, how to, to do this and how to do this in a feasible way. I mean, not slow down and do investigations and research for years and years and then start building. Me personally, and I know that the other fellow product managers have struggled with this. It's to balance the ratio between discovery and investigation versus execution. And especially the question is, when is enough? When do right. I have enough evidence to feel that I'm confident? I heard, I heard you say before, for example, that you did user testing and observe like actual user interacting with the tabs with 12 people right would mm -hmm. like literally when is uh, enough is there a number yeah that's a great question I, I like it because i wrote a full article on this which uh, we can share with your listeners um Let's take a step back and understand a little bit about evidence-guided, at least the way I perceive it. There's more than one way, of course. And then let's dive into this specific question. So I like to break the problem of 
getting evidence guided into four parts. And those are the four parts I kind of identify after this project and in other projects in Google that made Google a little bit different and allowed us to, to create this level of success. The first is creating good goals that are about outcomes, that are compact, that are well aligned, top down, bottom up. As I said, the strategy comes top down, the, the tactical comes bottom up, aligning across departments and teams. That's the first chapter in my book. And this is a big, big and important topic. OKRs fit in their metrics. Let's put this aside for a second. Uh, in the story, we did find a, a goal. Like uh, I told you that my team pushed on me to say, what's the goal? After we did the initial research, we realized that the important goal here is to allow casual users who don't know how to use the, the advanced features of Gmail interact just with the emails that they need to interact. That was kind of the objective read just what, what they want to read. If they want to find the promotions and the social notifications later, they will be there available to them, but they don't want to necessarily interact with them as the first thing. And then we set up some metrics to measure that. So we had an OKR that really guided us throughout. And that's something that's missing in a lot of companies. They are going after output goals or they have too many metrics to chase or they're not aligned. There's a lot of problems and solving this is crucial. If we get to the point where every team, every product team, and for me, a product team is typically 10 engineers plus designer plus PM, maybe a data scientist, have a bunch of clear goals, typically not more than three key results or four key results with metrics. Then the question is, which ideas are going to, to lead us there? And that's what I call ideation and evaluation. You, you collect ideas for research, through customer suggestions, through, from the team, from stakeholders. You know, ideas come from everywhere. But then you, f you need to find a consistent way to evaluate them and decide these are the ones we're going to park right now and these are the ones we're going to test first. That's the, what we call prioritization in the, in the industry. But it's very important to understand prioritization is about what are we going to test first, not what are we going to build completely now and launch. And once you do this, you, you switch to validation. Those ideas you decided to test, those are the ones that you think will move you towards your goals. You need to validate. And there are a bunch of validation techniques that I cover in the book. This is the steps layer of my GIST model, goals, ideas, steps, and tasks, the four parts. And during the steps, you need to do a bunch of things. You need to identify the assumptions in your idea, devise a validation method to test it. So let's let, take again the same example. There was an assumption that casual users in Gmail don't know how to manage their email and it causes them pain. So we first did... Uh, data analysis, and it did confirm that a lot of users actually are in this situation, but we didn't know how much pain they had. Then we interviewed them, and we saw they were, at least those that we picked, were in tremendous pain. It was a really big problem. And the two together gave us some level of confidence to say, there's definitely a problem that's worth fixing here. The next steps were about testing the usability of various ideas, and one of them gave us even higher confidence about the idea that we were considering, which was the tabs and the categorization of the email. And in some companies, you would stop there and say, okay, usability test done. From now on, let's build it. That's a very common pattern. But I would argue that that's very risky. Definitely at the level of Gmail, which is a very mission-critical product, but even in a more regular product, a feature that is that expensive and that transformational for the user experience is definitely something you want to validate more. So you probably don't want to stop there. However, if this was a smaller feature or less risky, you, you might stop at that and say, good enough, let's build it and launch it. It only takes us a few weeks. We launch it, we monitor the results. If it doesn't seem good, we might revisit it, okay, and iterate. So... There's an out to knowing when is the right time to stop. How much confidence do you need to build in order to, to say good enough? Uh, uh, one tool that I offer is called the confidence meter that kind of evaluates what, what kind of evidence you collected and it spits out a number between zero and 10, where zero is like you have almost no confidence that this is going to work. 
that's usually based on opinions or it can go up a little bit higher if you run it by experts and by your stakeholders etc that gives you maybe 0.1 out of 10 that's still opinions just of more people then you do data analysis or some research that gives you a little bit more confidence but the highest levels of confidence come from testing like we did the usability test longitudinal test a b experiments fake door tests, surveys these are all much more powerful ways to evaluate the idea, to validate the idea. So it's a system. It's a system of evaluation, validation, and then re-evaluation based on the evidence you create up to the point that you feel you have an idea that is validated and you can go ahead with product delivery. And from there on, it's more like the classic project management and development that you're used to. Okay. So there is a lot to unpack here because we basically outlined the overall framework and you gave us an extremely good introduction to it so that we know what we're talking about but i would like to start to go deeper in the main steps of the process starting with the goal section because i think that everything starts there right you need to have goals so how do you create goals that for your product that are aligned with the company mission, vision, of course, that can lead you to the greatest impact, whatever that might be. Right. And of course, this changes product to product. Huh? Of course. Yeah, that's a, that's an important challenge and it's a leadership challenge, I have to say. It's not just, it's a new way to lead. I have a few slides if uh, I can, I can proje- project and then we can talk about sure. it. So, First, let me tell you this. If you work in a startup and you work in a very particular problem, you identify some sort of opportunity in the market and you are looking for a way to attack this opportunity, that's all the goal you need. Find product market fit in this area. You don't need a lot of anything much more sophisticated than this. Maybe one traction metric like active users or users completing the the main action you expect them to complete. But the whole company is just working towards this one goal, and that's simple. Things get more complicated when the company grows, and then everyone is starting to invent departmental goals or they're attacking different markets, and then everyone's starting pulling in different directions. That's that's when we get into misalignment, and sometimes we lose our customer focus. We're just focused on revenue, etc. These are just two very common anti-pattern of goals. So what I found that companies like uh, Google and other evidence-focused uh, uh, companies use models. And let me show you one model that uh, I like to, to use. This is called the value exchange loop. So basically, we start from the very basic fact that every organization needs to do two things to succeed and grow, to deliver value to its market. Delivering value means addressing their needs at a reasonable cost. And to capture value back. And capturing value might mean revenue, market share, um, brand recognition, data, attention, anything we need in order to grow our own business, to monetize, to to have more resources. And then, of course, we can deliver more value. We can invest in, in value delivery. The product is kind of the means to an end in this in this instant, both to deliver value and also the reason to to capture value back. And the more we maintain this loop, the more we grow it, the better it gets. It's kind of a virtuous loop of give and take. I suggest putting some metrics on these things and capture value. I suggest picking one top level business metric, revenue, profit, active customers, pick one. It's, it's a strategic decision and say, this year, it's the year of profit. Let's try to break even this year. That's the most important thing for our company. Just as important, pick what's called a North Star metric, which is what is the most important measure of value delivered to the customers? What is the core value they, they strive to? And you may know some famous example, WhatsApp. It's, for WhatsApp, it was messages sent. For uh, Airbnb, it's nights booked. For Amplitude, the analytics tool is weekly learning users, which is the number of users that found some useful insight in the tool and they share it with at least other two people in the company. 
These are all very good measures of core value received. And this is a number we want to see grow up and to the right, ideally continuously forever. Once you have these two metrics, you can create a model around them, which is typically turns into a metrics tree, although there are, there are other types of models, which means for each one of these top level metrics, which are how to influence and slow to react, you start breaking them into submetrics that influence them, break those into submetrics until you find some sort of correlation between the things that, at the bottom of the tree that are easier to influence and uh, the things at the top that you really want to move. And that's a good exercise to do because it creates a model for you and it also enables you to divide the work. You can give some bottom metrics to team A and some to team B and they all collaborate on achieving the same top level metrics. So it also creates some alignment. This model creates the infrastructure for OKRs that come after and for many other things. And it also enables teams to evaluate the impact of their ideas on the nostal metric or the revenue, whatever it is that they're trying to optimize for. And in many companies I meet, this is a lacking sort of infrastructure. And they're kind of in the dark trying to guess what is most important right now. And, and when you're in this situation, customer requests, stakeholder requests, kind of take over and fill in the gap. Okay, this is absolutely wonderful. And I can see that if you really apply this, even at a bigger organization, the entire organization actually is aligned and move in the same direction. Okay, following this method, we observed, you know, our users. And we do have some indication, looking at data, looking at users, and we do have some ideas of what we should do to achieve our, let's say, I don't know, profitability goal. How do we go about prioritizing those ideas before, of course, we go uh, to validation? Right. So there are many prioritization techniques. And sometimes, again, if you're a small startup, the opinions, your opinion and the opinion of the, the founders, etc. sometimes it's good enough. You don't have that many ideas. You just need to pick where to start first testing. So sometimes consensus is enough or expert opinion. But again, as you grow bigger and the ideas start flowing from everywhere and the more pressure to deliver revenue results, etc., the choice of ideas become quite hard. And... One of the ways I suggest tackling this is with something like ICE, Impact, Confidence, and Ease, which is a method invented by Sean Alice, a growth guru, originally to, to prioritize uh, experiments. But I found it very useful also for product evaluation. Uh, if you're not familiar with ICE, I'll explain very briefly. For each idea, you're trying to kind of guesstimate three numbers. What's the impact on the key goal? And here we are connecting this to having clear and concise goals. What's the ease, which is kind of the opposite of effort. If something takes you a couple of weeks to build, it's very easy. You'll give it a 10. Something takes you three person months to build, probably not very easy. Maybe you'll give it a four. You need to adjust the scale to your velocity and what you're capable of doing, of course. With impact, a 10 is like the biggest idea, the most impactful idea you can imagine for this particular goal, while zero one is almost no impact. Unfortunately, most ideas actually fall into the zero to one range. There's some research to show this. And theoretically, that's all the, the evaluation you need to do. You need to come up with these numbers. And I will tell you that there are different techniques that I teach to improve the guesses, mm -hmm. especially on impact, which is a really hard thing to guess. But these are still guesses. And they can throw us completely in the wrong direction. There's all sorts of cognitive biases and all, all sorts of things that makes us guess really badly. And this is a really hard challenge for the human brain to answer these two questions, impact and ease. There's research to show this as well. So that's why we have the third element of confidence. That's the brilliance of the ICE method. Confidence tries to answer the question, how sure are we that when we say that the impact is seven and the ease is eight, that the numbers are not actually that the impact is one and the ease is three. How do we know? What makes us so convinced that this is a seven and an eight? And here, this is where you need to realize that there are different classes of evidence. 
if all you have to go by is your gut instinct and your opinion, even if you're the smartest, most experienced person, you might be wrong because it's really hard to guess these things. So the confidence level is low. If you did a, a consensus kind of review, you reviewed this with your colleagues, again, it's not going to give you that much more. If you started testing the idea and you're actually seeing that the impact is close to what you think, then you can give yourself a higher score. So we talked about various tests. In order to make all of this easier to process, I, I created this tool called the confidence meter, where in which I try to aggregate various types of, con- of evidence you might find with their associated confidence levels. This is actually the tool that most of my the people who know me know me because of this tool because it kind of became popular in the industry so basically it's like a thermometer it goes from very low confidence which is the dark blue area to high confidence which is the red area and the dark blue area is mostly about opinion self-conviction your own opinion or maybe you did a pitch deck or maybe it's connected to some buzzword in the industry or the strategy of the key of the, of the company. Those things are all opinions in various disguises. So that's why they don't never give you more than 0.1 confidence out of 10. Very low confidence. If you do reviews, if you do estimates and plans on paper, sometimes your ideas are actually exposed to harsher critique and harsher thinking. And then sometimes you realize they're not as strong, so you can park them. But still, these are numbers that are kind of in opinions pulled out of thin air. You didn't test anything. You didn't actually use a lot of hard data. So maximum 0.5 out of 10. Then you start pulling data. You don't do experiments yet, but you use available data. And I gave you an example in the story of the tabbed inbox. We, we did a data analysis. And this data can be anecdotal. So maybe a couple of customers ask for this feature or maybe one competitor has it. This is a little bit of outside proof that someone else thinks that your idea is good, but it can be extremely misleading. It can really send you in the wrong direction and turn out to be not reliable as a predictor. Unfortunately, in a lot of companies, if they think that the idea is good, opinions, and if the leading competitor has this feature, the validation is done. The idea is good, let's just build and launch it. And that's a disastrous way to build products. The data can come in what I call market data, which is larger data sets that come from data analysis, from surveys, from interviews, from deep competitive analysis. And that gives you a little bit more confidence. But we're still in the medium low confidence. So no more than one, two, three. To really go higher than that, you need to test it. You need to build versions of the of the product initially without code, later with code put them in front of users and measure the results. And that really provides you with much stronger evidence and it helps you improve the product because even good ideas need improvement. And that really guides you towards uh, the right product to build. This is absolutely wonderful. And I wonder how the confidence level differs in companies in various stages, especially in startups? Because we mentioned that, you mentioned before that, okay, if you're in a startup, uh, all you have to care about at the beginning is product market fit. That's what you need to focus on. But as a startup, it's sometimes difficult to have the resources to test um, ideas the same way that you will do in a bigger company with much, much more resources. So I wonder, since many of the listeners of this part, podcast actually have a startup or want to start a startup, if we get, can get deeper into the details uh, on uh, how they should approach the estimation of the impact and the confidence and the ease according to your framework. And, and let's say, let's pick an example. So we make it more interactive yep. and, and much clearer, I believe. And I thought we could do the example of dating apps because they are quite popular. You have this idea of a startup. You want to create the next level dating app. You want to avoid right. the pain of having to swipe left and right like Tinder to find a match. 
and you want to create the ultimate AI assistant to help you find the right partner for you. Let's say that this is the intuition where you start. So how would you go about, in such an example, going through the entire evidence-guided process from setting the goal, what would be the goal in this case, to making assumption and kind of establishing your confidence meter that this is indeed a good idea or good hypothesis, hypothesis to test. And if you right. don't like the example, by the way, we can make another one. Like we don't, don't have to stick with it. I don't know. No, no. I, I think it's a good example. Uh, absolutely. And it, I think it's very typical of how startups are created. They are created around one big idea that the founders are very excited about. And you said something very important. People tell you that you need to strive to product market fit. This is the ultimate goal of the first phase of the company's life. But so many startups don't hear this message and think that their ultimate goal is to execute the idea as fast as possible, to get it to the market. And some founders, actually, sorry, some investors actually push them in that direction. So I, I encourage everyone to listen to you and consider finding product market fit, their immediate goal. Then let's go a step back and let's define for, you're absolutely right. Let's not give that as granted as an assumption. What is product market fit? What does it look like? Exactly. So we're building a consumer product that is supposed to serve people who are looking for a date and in a very crowded market. They have a lot of options. So what would signal to us that actually we're solving a major problem and that people actually love this and this is actually addressing a major pain point in their lives? Any ideas? Um, You see, this is an interesting an interesting problem because it's actually one of it's a tricky example because this is one of those examples in which the business model is not aligned with the ultimate goal of the user. Meaning, in apps such as Tinder, I imagine that their North Star metric has something to do with something like conversation starter or something like that. But in the end, everything rests on the numbers of active users. So they need to have a lot of users in order for their metrics to look good, right? And to generate revenues because revenues, it's in the form of subscription, you know, etc. But the goal of the user is to get out of the app as fast as possible. So to find their, their match, potentially. Right. So I think this is kind of tricky here uh, to find a product market fit. Let's say that like what it looks like uh, ideally is that your user get out of the app as fast as possible because they found the right match. But this is kind of damaging also your your app. So it's a tricky quest. It's a tricky business, actually. Absolutely. And and that brings a challenge, a very important challenge of startup is they need to invent both a product that creates a lot of value for the market, because that's the only way they will survive, but they need also to find a viable business business model. And some people will advise you to stage those. It's so much easier to monetize after you found product market fit than it is to try to complete the puzzle from the day one. So while you should definitely work on your business model and iterate on it as you're looking for product market fit, product market fit is the goal, the first goal. And after that, finding a scalable business model. That's a lot of Silicon Valley investors will tell you that's the way they would like you to go. And it also changes the, the sort of rounds that you can get because in order to get to the next round, you should come with product market fit, not necessarily with a viable business model. That's that will take you to the next round after that. But without product market fit, you're you're doomed. So I, I would su- suggest let's focus on a no-style metric that indicates that your um, new dating app actually creates a lot of value for the target okay. audience. So let's say we're targeting people that want very serious relationships. They're not looking for something occasional, spontaneous, but they're really looking for their soulmate, someone to start a family with. So right. for, for which maybe the Tinder or Bumble work less well. So so we would ideally, our ideal North Star metric is basically the number of serious couples yes. we create. That's really the core value yes. they're coming for. 
which immediately creates a problem because that happens off offline, off uh, product. It's hard to measure. We could try to do it through different ways. Like we could come as close in the pipeline as we can and find indications that they are actually going to meet. And then after they met, we could track whether or not they come back to the app because that might be a good indication if they don't. And then we might survey them and not everyone will respond, but we'll ask them, how did this date go? And are you going seriously? I don't know if all of this is feasible. You need to, t- to test it, but in it, one of those at least should be your nostal metric, maybe a combination of them. And number of serious couples created per month is probably your nostal metric in some way or form. Okay. So, sounds sounds right absolutely for amazing for me. Okay, so, so let's say we All have right. that, and that's our, our goal that indicates our product market fit. So you need to set a target. You should say, if we reach okay. a certain percentage of our customers are turning into serious, the conversion rate or the number of serious partners we're creating, serious partnerships we're creating, reaches a certain threshold, we hit product market fit. We're, we're, we're ready to switch into... Okay you know, business and thinking how to monetize this and scale it. Okay. So let's say that I have no idea regarding the benchmarks. So I didn't do the research here, but let's say that if uh, 30% uh, of uh, the users that use the app find their ideal match uh, on the first date, so like on the first day that they meet this person, then we we have a good algorithm to to start building oh. on. Fantastic! I don't know. This sounds optimistic to me, but I, I mean, I mean like, let's it. see, right? <laughs> maybe maybe it's a lot. Yeah, you need to iterate. You need to iterate on it. And by the way, sometimes you don't know how you create value, so you just measure active users initially. That's the default for most uh, consumer apps, at least. And then gradually you grow up to and you make it more specific as you understand exactly how you create value for them. But we have a target. We have uh, one metric to aim for, which is beautiful. You can align your entire startup around growing this number. That's that's our target. Hitting that target within a time box of a few months so we can go and have our next round with something very concrete. Now the question is, how do we get there? And again, those very ambitious, very optimistic startupists will just say, let's build the whole thing and launch it as soon as possible. And then we'll blow their minds up. And that's the absolutely worst way because you will burn through your cash and, and fizzle out. Another alternative, and I'll show another slide, is to start validating it through steps. And steps are just activities or or mini projects that help us learn something more of the idea and evaluate it better. Remember the ICE, impact confidence it is. So you can start, and I like to break them into five buckets, assessment, fact-finding, tests, experiments, and release. Uh, So let me give you a few examples from each with our idea. So you come up with your idea. The idea is to do AI matching. Was that correct? AI matching, like basically like a dating agency, but instead of like an agency with real people using an AI, let's say that's the idea. Okay. This idea is very general and can break into various implementations, but let's start with that. So would that contribute to the goal? This is goals alignment. Yeah, probably if we do it, we will create more steady couples. Business modeling, that's, let's put this aside. First, ICE analysis. We're just thinking, how much is this going to contribute to our goal of creating? How much effort we will go into it? That's the is. And how much do we know already? And then you need to ask yourself, what evidence is there that AI will create steady couples? But should you do this with problems or with solutions? Like, should you, should you separate the two? Like, let's say that you assume that people that are looking for long-term relationship experience certain types of problems with current solutions. And then you have ideas of how you can solve it. So like what the feature could look like in the product. How should you go about validating the problems versus validating the solutions? Is like in the same step or like should you do it separately? You know what I mean? So the, the problem space or the opportunities, as you like to call them sometimes, or maybe most correctly, the underserved needs, 
is either something you already know because you did this research or something you need to go out and do the okay. research and map out. You started with an idea. The idea has an underlying assumption that there is a pain yeah. right now with existing customers of Bumble and Tinder, etc. Maybe anecdotally, you have evidence that that's true because you experienced it yourself and some of your friends said, yeah, I, I, it's, it's crap. So that's anecdotal evidence that this problem exists, but you can go out and interview a larger set of potential people, do a survey, et cetera, and you should largely try to break it down into whether or not this problem exists. So maybe there are sub-problems mm -hmm. of it that are deserving of a solution. And yeah, I agree. This is Then it's the time to start thinking about ideas. But sometimes you know enough, you come from this field, you already feel you know enough that you, you start from the idea, and that's also okay. Sometimes things like AI create an opportunity in their own right. You know that there's, there are solutions, but you think you can create a better solution because of AI. So sometimes you go technology research first, idea, and then validation. Sometimes you start customer uh, first, sometimes market first. You found an opportunity with a new partner, and then you go back and build an idea. So it can go in many different okay. ways. Okay, let's say we did the research. We know a little bit of our users. So some first steps, you can do ice analysis. You can do assumption mapping to ask yourself, what are the assumptions hitting in this idea? One assumption is that AI will actually create very good matching, etc. That's assessment. Fact-finding is going out and doing the, some deeper analysis of this idea using surveys, competitive analysis, field research, user interviews, etc., this is different from the research we did before. This is about validating your specific idea. Okay. Okay. That's solution validation versus problem validation. And if the idea still looks good, you can go into tests. The earliest tests are about faking the idea through smoke tests or fake door tests, as they're called, Wizard of mm -hmm. Oz, concierge tests, usability tests. You don't build really a lot. You're just testing your most important assumptions by faking these products and seeing how users interact with them. And then if it goes, still goes good, you can start doing early adopters or longitudinal user studies or alphas or fish. These are all kind of midterm stages where you build a very rough version of the product. It, it uses code, but there's a lot of shortcuts. Maybe some things are done manually, maybe not all the scenarios are covered, maybe it's not fully fleshed out, but it's enough to give what you consider the core, core value, and you give it to users to use. This could be external users or sometimes internal users, like you and your team, for example, if you're in the target audience. And finally, we have late stage tests, which are like betas and dog foods and previews and labs, and those are almost complete products. And these are much more serious tests. That's, here we actually almost build the entire thing. There's an even more rigorous form of tests, which I call experiments, because that's how data scientists think of them. And that's A-B experiments, A-B-N experiments. Those require a lot of data. So as a startup is, probably you will not use any of this. So going back to, the, and finally, the release itself can be an experiment. So going back to the example, if you want, I will do an ICE analysis first. I will do assumption mm -hmm. mapping. And I will take the key assumptions and try to validate them through data analysis if we have access to data or through competitive analysis, seeing how many of our competitors are doing AI, what are they doing exactly, how does it seem to be working. I will try it myself to see how much I love the experience or hate it. And that will give you a little bit more confidence about your idea and also for a better assessment of what it will include. Then an interesting way, how do we simulate this? So a lot of times with AI, I would do a Wizard of Oz. So you will bring some potential customers into the lab and you will fake the AI by putting a teammate behind the scenes. And that will kind of put you in the right place. After you did say Wizard of Oz, you see that people really react very positively with the new experience. Like we experience we in Gmail with the tabs. You might think of doing an alpha or like an early adopter group where basically those are people that are willing to start using it. But then you'll run into the challenge that you need a lot of users to, to actually be on. So it's a question of how to simulate the value while you still don't have the product. So 
here probably the the best thing would be to create a rudimentary version mm -hmm. of the product and then try to to onboard enough people from a specific area and try to get them to to use it and give you feedback there may be other ways to kind of onboard people from or maybe you you go to i don't know a forum for singles or something else there's different ways to market this and say this is free right now we just want your feedback give it a go tell us what's going on most of them will churn out almost immediately but at least you will learn and gradually you'll see who does this resonate with what's going on and slowly but surely you may find a product that does fit the market and then does get more people to retain and and then you can start doing this later tests like you can build a, a more final version of it you can do an a b experiment and then you can start launching and iterating over this is it. incredible i wonder as a product manager or as a founder how can you choose among the various type of testing which one is the best one to give you validation because there are a lot like some I've never heard of like fish food i never heard of for example so again this is all explained in my book and my ebook but uh fish food is a very googly name it's like the team itself is starting ah, to use it okay working it And this is not for a startup. This is a larger organization. Look, for example, Gmail, every time we created a new Gmail feature, the first people to actually test it were us on our own inboxes. And then this way, and then you can grow it into a dog food, which is a company-wide uh, test. Okay, cool. Okay, I have one last question because we talk a lot about digital software products, but we have not talked about how could you implement this method for physical products so products that are not software based right for which validating can be much more challenging so how would you go right. about that i would say this first off with every category of product that i meet whether it's internal platforms and services teams b2b even some b2c Someone might come and say, you know, great idea, thank you, but that's probably for these other people, not for us. We're special for us. It, it simply doesn't work. And that's completely not true. That's just an excuse to cope out of actually doing the hard work. You can definitely use product discovery on hardware products. It's slower, absolutely. It requires more effort than with... a software product but it's definitely doable to begin with a lot of hardware products or physical products actually software products that are running on non-standard hardware and we need to recognize this if you have an uh, iot device or something that allows you to update the software you can run experiment actually software experiments with this thing you can update it and give your customers a chance to try something else and uh, so The difference between hardware and software is actually shrinking over time. Let's imagine you're doing something completely hardware, completely offline. Let, let me give you an example from that Eric Ries uh, gave in one of his books. Eric Ries is the founder of Flint mm -hmm. Startup, if you're not familiar with him. He advised General Electric about or General Motors. Uh, I'm not sure which of the two. And they put him on the most difficult project possible. There was this... team that was trying to develop another a new type of diesel generator and this is like a room sized device and the project was planned to run five years five years non-stop just designing and building the thing no tests whatsoever and then going to the market and seeing if actually there's demand they already did the market research before and now it was the execution and they said okay mr lynn startup how can you help us with this extreme case and he pressed on them to try to find out in a shorter period than five years whether or not the market is really interested in this thing. And initially, it seemed impossible until someone said, you know, there's this other engine, uh, other generator that already exists that has a lot of the similar characteristics. It's not diesel, it's petrol. But apart from that, it, we, can't re we can't repackage it. It's a more expensive thing. Of course, it It will not be as profitable, but we can re repackage it and sell it to the target market and see if that's uh, viable, if they're, they're interested. 
And that project took only six months, if I recall correctly. Instead of five years, six months. Here they are with this MVP in six months in the market. And they learned that actually people are interested. And actually this thing started generating a little bit of profit. So that gave them a lot of uh, confidence that the idea is good. But it also gave them some feedback from real customers from the outside about what they really needed and they didn't. And that probably enabled them to pivot a little bit and improve the spec of the product. So for me, this is a beautiful example of how even in the most harsh conditions, you can find a way to test. It takes six months. It doesn't take two weeks, but you are testing and, and, and engaging with the customers. And that's really the core of product discovery. Is there... Now that you mention it, I think like one key difference maybe is also in not just like if you have a software or physical product, but also if you are in B2C versus B2B or as a matter of fact in a marketplace that you might be serving both at the same time. How do you go about that? Because this increases the complexities, I believe. Absolutely. So all of these questions I try to answer in my book because they were asked so many times. So Chapter seven, by the way, asks what's the difference between startup and scale-up or mid-sized company and enterprise in the implementation of the GIST model and these principles. And some of the things we talked about, find product market fit, your goal is there, what validation techniques use are answered in this chapter. Chapter eight is about how do you customize this to B2C, B2B, uh, multi-sided marketplaces, platform and services teams, internal customers, you know, and physical products. So the easiest answer is with B2C. B2C is easiest to test, easiest to iterate on, easiest to get quantitative and qualitative uh, research on. But the biggest problem that I see there is that they they don't do it enough. So I try to kind of give some uh, indications how B2C should maximize the potential, do it faster. In B2B, there's a lot of reticence to towards this approach because they say you know our products our, our, our customers expect a complete product everything goes through sales channels we cannot just let the product team talk directly to the customers there's all these inhibitions why we cannot test and we cannot discover so let's just do the old way and that's not true at all First off, a lot of the of the models that I've shown, a lot of the validation techniques I've shown actually apply to B2B. All the qualitative ones, interviews, market surveys, competitive analysis, assumption mapping, all of these things you can do. You don't have any free card out of to not to do it. Then in order to go deeper, you need to find some potential customers that are willing to have a different type of relationship with you. It's not just you pitching to them an existing product and trying to sell. It's more like you are asking them if they have this problem and you're saying, let's, I have something for you, but it's not complete. Do you want to experiment with it? Do you, and, and in exchange, A, you'll give them a huge discount at the end, probably if they decide to buy and B, they can shape this product with you. They have direct access to the product team. This is called an early adopter program in B2B. And it's extremely powerful if you're able to generate it. You need to find the right six to eight uh, potential customers. Marty Kagan wrote a lot about this. And that's a way to actually find a more easy audience to give new versions of the product to, to iterate with, and to gradually build the, the right product for them and find product market fit if you need, if, if it's a new product. You can do advisory boards. You can. There's all sorts of ways to test with B2B. You can do A-B experiments on some features that are already launched, like the search feature of, uh, I don't know, um, uh, the, ver- the Microsoft server or some Microsoft product is actually running a lot of A-B experiments in the background and you don't even know about it. So a lot of these techniques are actually available to B2B. So don't give yourself a get-out-of-jail-free uh, card. Uh, and here I thought I can just build whatever comes to my mind. <laughs> Itamar. Exactly. I really want to thank you for this incredibly value-packed interview. Thank you for going through an entire example with me. Is there ways in which the audience can keep in touch with you, resources we can share and that we can link in the show notes, of course, so where listeners can find you? So my website is probably the best destination. It's itamarangilad.com. 
will probably add a link. And in it, you, you will find re various resources, including eBooks, templates, like the confidence meter I mentioned, you can download it as a spreadsheet. There's a lot of templates for outcome-based roadmaps and all sorts of, this is a big system. If you want to, to understand the system as a whole, if you want to understand how it applies to you and how you can drive the change, I would recommend the book, which you can find in evidenceguided.com. And those are all kind of the two calls to action. Tamargila.com, evidenceguided.com. And take and it from there. listeners can find the links in the show notes and in the YouTube description. So Itamar, thank you so much for taking the time to do, to do this interview with me. Thank you for inviting me. And for listeners, I'll see you on the next episode. Bye. That's all from today's episode. Thank you so much for watching or listening. If you find this episode valuable, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel or to the Polyweb podcast on Spotify, Apple, or your favorite podcast app. It would be fantastic if you could leave us a rating, a review, or a comment, as this really helps other listeners find the show. All the resources mentioned in this episode will be linked in the description and in the show notes. See you on the next episode. And if you cannot wait until next week, you can watch this episode right here that relates to some of the things that we talk about in this episode. Bye.